All right, Tannis, let us begin. Great. So I'm Tannis Monroe, and uh, and I am a uh, the executive director of Amarok Society, our charity where we teach mothers to teach children in uh, slums of megacities um, on the other side of the world. And uh, that's one of the hats that I wear. Right. And specifically Bangladesh. Specifically right now, we're focused on Bangladesh. That's right. All right. Thank you. All right. Well, you know, how I like to start is because this year I'm in my second season of the podcast. And this year I've made a decision to interview people that have committed to doing something, showing up for the world in a, in an exceptional way. And what I often like to ask my guests, my guests at the beginning is what is your journey and what brought you to being so passionate about teaching mothers to write and to read in a third world country? Well, um, just to give you a little bit background, um, my, my background was um, education. I was principal and director of education for First Nations communities. And we would specifically um, <clears throat> go to uh, places that were troubled, like highly troubled community communities. And uh, through empowering the youth, make a massive massive changes. Um, so the power of education is something that I thought I really understood. And, and I did to a certain extent. Um, but when I was, you know, then I was sort of ready for um, doing something different and got a call from an international nonprofit and NGO um, from Ireland. Mm. They invited me to come and uh, help them uh, to lead their education initiative in Bangladesh to improve the Bangladesh education system. And uh, when I started to look it up, this was way back in 2005, actually. Um, so back in those days, uh, it was hard to find out things on, on internet, oddly enough. It's hard to imagine now um, with Bangladesh. But what we did find out was that it seemed to be a country with uh, one of the worst education systems in the world. And uh, it seemed to be a country of the worst of the worst and the, you know, the least of the least and all, all of that. So it, it obviously it was irresistible to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we like to do. Me yes. and my husband, Jim. Yep. And so uh, we went over and, uh, and all of our work was uh, like most charities work is in villages in rural communities and so on. And we were working, I was working with the boards of education there. Uh -huh. um, to uh, improve education, the education system. Um, however, we were uh, told that we needed to live in Dhaka. Now, Dhaka is the capital city of Bangladesh, and it is the fastest growing megacity in the world. It grows every year by the size of Winnipeg, all unplanned. Um, <laughs> it is a cacophony of chaos and just absolute, you know, pandemonium. That's, that's Dhaka. Um, but filled with beautiful people. Uh, but, but in any case, so, uh, one of the things that we saw was most certainly my work with this charity was certainly improving education, but we also saw worse than a poor education system. There were millions of children in Dhaka without any education at all, none whatsoever. And so then, uh, we decided that we needed to try to do something about it. And, and I'll get to the mothers in a second. So the first thing that we did 
Angelina is what most of us would do, right? So we uh, we started schools just for free for for children. And uh, my husband and we had four children aged 18 down to five. And the three older ones um, would help and volunteer with this. And we started teaching groups of children. But we could see that that is a drop in the bucket. You know, Bangladesh is a puny country. It's... um. You know, it's, it's, as an example, it's, um, a quarter the size of Alberta, a sixth the size of Ontario. It's just tiny. And yet it has about 175 million people. Wow. And DACA grows by 800,000 people per year, mainly flooding in from the countrysides in search of desperately in search of a better job. Opening up schools and teaching groups of children was going to be like putting a drop into the Pacific Ocean. It, we had to do something more than that. So just like when we were working up north with First Nations communities, we we thought, let's look around and see what you what uh, resource in these slums is being underutilized. And uh, and in that, we saw that uh, the mothers, these mothers who live there, are uh, at the very lowest rung of the economy and the socioeconomic ladder, if you like were uh, kept inside all day long to clean and to cook and to have babies. And they had no social life. Their husbands would go out and watch at the little store, uh, the the soccer game. We call soccer, they call football on TV. And they'd all gather and have great social life. And the mothers were just kept all by themselves. So we thought, wow, what if we utilize them? And And then there's a story for actually how we got in there because you can't just waltz into one of these slums, especially as a Canadian. So um, we, uh, we used to, and especially my husband, Jem, because I was also working and then he was also doing volunteer work and taking care of the four children and everything else. And so uh, he, especially, but both of us to a certain extent got to know a group of beggar women outside one of the more expensive places you can shop. When you first go to a country like Bangladesh, you must go to the international place because otherwise you don't have a clue what you're doing in the local markets or what food is good or how to cook it. Or anything else. So, so we used to, when we were first there, go to the one uh, place that catered to the diplomats and a few international workers. It's uh, Bangladesh in general, just to get the sense of it. It's a very monopolitan uh, country. There, yeah. Any stand out like a sore thumb yeah and uh so so we uh so um th- there is one uh woman there are a bunch of women who we got very friendly with and we could speak hardly any bengali and they could speak hardly any english but they would come they would have their babies in arm or borrow another baby from one of their friends and say oh babu very very sick very sick like that and then you're supposed to give money to them right and uh in any case there was one woman who we call the queen of the beggars um, <laughs> who was, uh, her, her, her little baby would always smile and giggle, um, when he was, the, the baby was supposed to be pretending to be very sick. And so we, we'd always laugh and she would start laughing. And, and of course we gave them some money, but we became really friendly, especially with this one woman, Mooney is her name. And then several, a couple of months later, when we really wanted to, uh, let's go into the slum and see what we can do. Um, what, what happened was, uh, Jem was walking down the street and we hadn't walked down that particular street for a while. And Mooney was there 
desperately looking for him. We're counting the days till she saw one of us again. And there was Gemma. And she said, come, come, come with me quickly. They got onto a rickshaw and went zipped down to where she lived, down the labyrinth of alleyways um, to where she lived. And uh, and then she took him to her little shack, which is a corrugated tin shack. It's like row housing, all of it. But And you can easily get lost in these places. And on the bed, the shacks are big enough for a bed and usually a chair. And on the bed, um, what Jem saw was a little girl about eight years old. It was Mooney's daughter, eight years old. And she had typhoid fever and she was clearly in about her last day or two. Yeah, her eyes were glazed over. Uh, she wasn't responding to anything and just lying on the bed without moving and high, high temperature. Um, now, there's easy cures for typhoid fever. It costs about 60 bucks to go on. So six, measly $60 to go on, um, you know, a, a course of, uh, of medicine over a few days, you know, a couple of weeks. And, and then, then it's, it's done. It's very easy to cure it. But to Mooney, $60 might as well have been $60 million. She just didn't have it. Yeah. So they ended up, uh, Jem scooped up little Hira, that's the little girl's name, into his arms. They went over to a rickshaw. And of course, all the people, foreigners never go in there. They're like amazed and looking and, and, and made way. And you, you read that book, right? Also that sort of tells the story about it of the two stories, but, um, yeah. And, and, uh, at the end, so Hira got what she needed and she was uh, all better within a couple of weeks. And, uh, and she's, um, now grown up to be a, a wonderful young woman. Um, and, but in return, you know, um, Mooney said to Jem, thank you so much. I'll do, you know, whatever you want. And, you know, and, and he said, okay, let us open up a school in your house. Cause we had asked them before and they said, no, mm. for one thing, education is for other people. And, uh, it does, we've never had education and we're sort of worried about it. And it's best for us not to have it. We don't understand it and we don't want it. So we were able to open up the first school and it had about eight brave women. And we told them that we will teach you, provided you each teach five children. And huh? since then, yeah, so, and that really, really worked. So they had to teach uh, one child could be their own and the other four had to be from the neighborhood. And that's now what we do. Our model is we, we teach children through mothers. So mothers, we open up schools of 25 mothers and every mother teaches at least five children. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's wonderful. That is so wonderful. And I, I do love the story because it is within that story. I mean, and you probably would have thought the little baby was, oh, was that the little baby that the mother used? Um, no, 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 no the little baby was fine. But, so oh. this was an eight-year-old girl. Yeah. Oh, so this was another baby. Yep. Young girl. And, uh, and it just so happens that she was able to ask for help and get the help. And you guys provided the help because yep. presumably you knew how to get access to the medicine that she needed. Oh, it, no problem. If you've got money, uh, it's absolutely no problem. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and what connected us, Angelina, it's so neat because it's, uh, it's again, I go back to uh, some of the uh, most Northern First Nations communities we've lived on. Sometimes when people only speak their own language and they don't speak English and you don't speak much or maybe even any of their language, you can still get this fantastic connection through humor. Mm. 
Yeah. And, and, and I also think that um, people who have been oppressed and, uh, and, that, and have had, you know, really hard, hard times, humor is even more readily there. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Humor is a is a um, a language that everybody speaks. Yeah, right? yeah. And you don't have to understand the linguistics, but it's just the body language. It's how they animate what they're saying, and you get yeah. that this is humor, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's in the smile, in the eyes, and you know all that stuff represents what they're trying to convey, which is levity and lightness, right? Yeah. Because yes. or, or or absurdity, whatever yes. it is. Yeah. Yeah. And usually absurdity is just a way to cover how horrible life is. You're right. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean you must you must have I don't know if, if you've attended indigenous funerals or wakes. Yes. Um uh, but often, like I, I come from a large family. I've attended many funerals, and we're always laughing. And you know, people that don't belong to the family, if they knew this was the wake that was happening, and they hear the laughter that's going on in there, they might wonder what's what's so funny. That person's dead. This is not the place to laugh, right? So, yeah. Um, it's a different culturally, it's different and it's, and within indigenous cultures, sometimes that's, that's what's there. That's the norm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's such a good uh, way to get you through tough times and humor also has got to be one of the most, uh, you know, apart from love itself, it's such a human uh, characteristic or character. I mean, it's such a human thing and what a great way to connect with somebody in a very human way. Yeah. Is yeah. yeah. It's totally, that's, yeah, I, I do love it. And I do love, of course I've read, you know, Jim's book. I, I should order more because that was a, such a wonderful book and he's such a great writer. It really sucked me into the whole culture, you know, I feel like I've been there just in reading <laughs> what he's, what he said. And, you know, like we've had the conversation where, you know, I mentioned that I couldn't do what you did. I mean, mm -hmm. I see a little spider and I'm going crazy, but cockroaches and, you know, different things like that's there in, in that area. Like I couldn't do it. I'm just too privileged and too, I don't know, too, I, I mean, I guess if I had to, sure, I might do it, right? I mean, I live in the country, and I think I would have thought I would not want to live in a country, and especially if there's bugs, you know, like spiders and whatnot. But here I am. I live in the country. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So, you know, we surprise ourselves. You know, sometimes we think we're not up to certain things. But if things present themselves, we we show up for it in a different way that, that we would have thought. You know, we limit ourselves by thinking, I would never do that. You know, I would never, I mean, I lived in a house with no electricity, <laughs> no plumbing, right? <laughs> I mean, and now I have, you know, some luxuries that I never dreamt were possible when I was in Fort Chippewa.
So, you know, and, I, and, you know, just following up on that, Angelina, really, the deepest joy is not even a nice house or a ni- whatever it is, because or any of our um, material stuff or any of our anything like that, that satisfies us. What's so fulfilling, I think, for people, certainly I can speak for myself, is actually being able to make a difference in the world, actually being able to do some good in the world to actually impact others lives positively, like that is what life is, you know? Yes, definitely. You're right. And, you know, I, as, as we're talking and we're talking about education and, you know, I just found out our friend has passed away and she was big on education, big on reviving the uh, Blackfoot language. You know, she was an author a professor, and she worked tirelessly, you know, to to keep the Blackfoot language alive. And yeah. so as we're talking about education and educating mothers, I think our friend, you know, Dr. Bastine would have been in agreement with us in terms of how we reach out to the mothers yeah. and inspire them to inspire to teach children in the community. And I think that's a huge, huge gift that I've received from, you know, Dr. Bastine all these years. She was a very close friend. And just the love of language, the love of teaching. And she was really, um, the best way to describe her is she had a, a specific way of teaching that was kind of no nonsense. So she, you know, like she had great integrity, but if she saw, you know, like she, she expressed to me when she first, you know, the first day of class, she'll say, this is what I'm expecting of you. And if you're not going to do it, leave the class now because you're not going to (laughs) learn. And she said, you know, some couple people will leave that we're brave enough to leave because often when a professor says that to you, you don't want to get up and leave and draw attention to yourself. Naturally, naturally. you'd rather sit in your chair and pretend. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And she was, and so Betty was like that. She, she just stated things flatly as it is. And it was no nonsense. And she created an environment for her students that was a space to learn. And um, I really admire that. And and so I just kind of got off track. <laughs> no, 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 I just want to say something as too, because really Betty's um, passing is just has hit so many people that her life was huge, not because of what she had, obviously. Yeah. Um, just lived modestly, uh, but and she never stopped working until she had to stop working. I mean, yes. she just she and her work was all about. Uh, making other people's lives bigger and pushing them. Like you say, it yeah. wasn't here. I'm inviting you to do this. No, like, I really think you should do this. I can help you, but you've got to be serious about it. So she was just no nonsense, like you say. Yeah. And, and it's because she herself, her life was, um, in integrity. She was complete with everything. She, she had a life of integrity where she really did walk the talk yes. that she could demand that of other people as well. Because yes. they can look at her and they can see it. So then they, and it was very encouraging. She's, she's made a massive difference for so many people. 
Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely agree. And, you know, and one of the things she said to me, which I think really resonates with what you're doing in the schools in slums, she said, because we were talking about, you know, the revitalization of indigenous languages. And she said, you know, if you have two people, that's all you need that speak the language. That's all you need to revitalize that language. And so what you're doing is, you know, you have a mother that's willing to teach five children. So Mm -hmm. education will not be stagnant. It'll continue to grow. And imagine, you know, where that will lead to some of the students, you know, today for the future. Like it will open up the doors for them in a big way, all because they were, they accepted the condition of teaching at least five others to to read and write. And you're, you're so right, Angelina. And these women, I mean, we can all relate to them for different reasons, but they walk into the schools first off, believing that A, there's no way that they can learn to read and write because one, number one, they're women. Number two, and there's just how their culture is, right? Number two, and their social economic status there. Number two, uh, they're too old. And I'm talking about like 19 and 20 year old mothers sometimes too old to learn. <laughs> and, and 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 number three, nobody has any uh anything but disdain for them, including themselves. They keep their eyes down and all of that. And within a very short time, they really take it on. You give people sometimes a chance, um, you know, just a chance. And not only as as with the First Nations work that we did in the in the north, um, you know, education allows people to be self-expressed and to become leaders. So I'll just I'll let you know. Number one. These children who are in the mother's micro schools, so five children each sitting on the bed, because that's there's no space outside, there's no nice tree with a hill, to, nothing like that. It's on the bed. And they gather around on the bed uh, every day, and the mother teaches them, and every single one of them continues on in school after that. They're with the mother in the micro school for about four years, and then they go on, and we have many of them graduating from high school. And many go on to college and university. And these are children without any history of education in their families. But then more than that, it gives so much more to anybody than the ABCs. ABCs, um, what I really got, it's funny, Angelina, because I've been an educator for my whole life, uh, adult life, right? I didn't realize how big a deal it was um, for brain development, learning how to read and write in any language, doesn't matter what the language is in any, in any language, it actually develops your left hemisphere, which is your analysis, your synthesis, your, now I can compare this and that and and all of that. You know, you need, we have two hemispheres for good reason. Uh Uh, Yeah. And, and so it, it massively develops that, uh, and that mothers can then start to what what that means practically is uh they get the, what the days of the week are and the time of the day and that there's seasons and that there is a monsoon that will come every single year yeah. and you need to prepare for that all of that is not possible times but um uh consequence results and so on are all unavailable if your left hemisphere is completely undeveloped you cannot see cause and effect right right yeah, yeah so important and yeah well you know i have um Similar, similar story. I mean, not quite similar, but, <laughs> um, I was one of the, um, uh, 
people involved in creating an alternative Indigenous school in Edmonton, Ben Caffrey School. And it, I was just out of university and uh, I, I got interviewed by the, the director that was leading this, this idea to create a, a junior high school uh, for alternative, for Indigenous children that were students that were falling through the cracks. So these were students that were, if we didn't intervene, probably would have dropped out of school. And uh, and I remember sitting with one of the other the other uh, writers, curriculum writers, Doctor O, and I still remember his name because I remember arguing with him. You know, because what we were intending to do in the school was indigenize the curriculum so that we were creating a context for learning that the students would be able to understand because it related to them. And so it would make learning that much more um, familiar to them and easier for them to understand because they could relate it to their lives. And so... Myself and Dr. Owen, we used to argue about putting this in or pulling this out of the curriculum. And I insist on keeping certain things in that I had thought about, you know, <laughs> say, well, we really got to have this. And, you know, he would make me argue for it. And then, uh, you know, most often, because I always get my way, it was left in. <laughs> so, anyway, the school still exists today. In Edmonton, so it's. I think it's coming up on. I don't know, 40th anniversary or anyway. It's it's been there a long time, and it continues it's to exist. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so it was. And one of the things that we we made sure the school had is a meal program. So we made sure to serve breakfast, lunch and a snack before the students left at the end of the day. Because we understood already that most of the Indigenous students didn't have regular food at home. Like they didn't, they came to school hungry because of whatever the situation was in their home. They they arrived at school tired and hungry. And, and we know too, you know, when you talk about the brain and the, the development of the brain, you need to feed it and not just junk. You know? It has to have substantial, you know, like protein, some fruits and, you know, proper um, juice and water. You know, it needs to be fed. It needs to be nourished. So along with that, you need to have, you need to feed your brain. So you feed it food, you feed it liquid and you feed it, socialization and you feed it uh, learning, you know, and also, you know, when you're writing and I don't know in the schools, were there left-handed students? And how did you guys address that? Um, in what we do in Bangladesh? Yes. Uh, yeah, there are some, and that was no problem at all. Uh, you know, because unlike when you were growing up, um, this is now and like there's just no problem i'll tell you what we even have a couple of mothers there with no hands at all okay yeah yeah 
they, they were little children and like because of the people were going after they uh they're very very poor and they lived right beside the railway track which many of the poor people do if you can imagine being like three feet away from the train coming uh, uh-huh. and uh the children she and her sister were out playing um and they didn't get out of the way in time amazingly and and both of she lost both of her hands her sister lost one hand and obviously in a place like bangladesh as you can imagine that's it for your life number 1 you'll certainly never be married and number 2 you will be a beggar forever so we were able to get to her when she was um uh somewhere in her 20s she already knew she would never be married um, and, uh, and she, uh, I mean, it was always her dream to have children. That was impossible because nobody would marry her. Um, she now is able to, she holds a pencil. It's like you and I writing with our wrist, uh-huh. but she's able to understand because we teach through songs, accelerated learning that way. It's something we made up with the first nations in the first nations communities. And, uh, and she, uh, she now teaches five children. It's, um, her absolute joy and pleasure and privilege to be able wow. to be a leader. So how does she, she write? Does she use her feet for writing? No, she does. She doesn't. She uses her wrists. That's what she uses. She oh. holds something in, in between her wrists. She puts a pencil. That's just how she's comfortable doing it. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That's amazing. Wow, that, and that's wonderful um, to be able to. And, and this is what I'm saying too about, you know, often we limit ourselves by saying, I just can't do it. You know, I have no hands, so I can't do it, right? But to look at, look, looking at exploring other ways to do things. And, and that's what I, I like to always explore is there's more than one way to do something. There, there is, of course, the goal has to be enticing and wanted enough, right? Cause if yes. it's, you don't want it, well, forget it. You know, yeah. If, yeah, if it's something you want, there will be all sorts of ways to get there that yeah. you might not really see in, immediately. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it has to be, has to incorporate discipline because, yeah, and, and in fact, I was just, you know, we were on the zoom call earlier and in my, my little, in the breakout room, I was talking to Brad and, and I was say and he was talking about, you know, the discipline and he said he was, uh, what did he say he was learning? He was learning something. And, oh, he's a musical instrument. And he said, you know, he practices that, you know, three hours a day or some something. And, you know, because it's to achieve something, right? So you make a commitment, you require discipline, and discipline happens by repetition. So if you have a commitment, so I'm going to practice three hours a day. And then when you're doing that, you build the discipline. So, you know, because if you just say, well, I'm going to practice three hours a day, there may be days where you say, I don't really feel like it. (laughs) You know, I'm I'm not into it today. I'm just going to not do it. And it's easy enough to do that and then just not do it. Right. Yeah. But it's it's the discipline and the discipline also builds character because if, if you're, if you create the discipline, you build your character and you'll be known as that person. Once they say something, they're going to do it. They have that character and we all want to have that. 
Yeah, be trusted, be appreciated, be looked up to, be admired. Yes, of course. And interestingly enough, um, when you do have that, uh, when you do develop yourself in that, because it's not, we we talk about it like it's a character. Uh, that's how people colloquially speak about it, and that's what we talk, what we say. Um, but really, it's just simply a practice, like what you were saying, Angelina. And uh, and it's really also a lot about integrity. Actually, walking your talk. Yes. And yeah. You know what you said you're going to do. Yeah. 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 It's a massive difference, and starts to open up other things in your life as well. It's, mm-hmm. it's start to really walk your talk. Yeah, yeah. And that totally is, um, well, it's, it's exciting because, you know, when, when you're doing that and I, and I can't imagine, like, I think I remember telling you that last year when we were doing this course together, I, I made a decision to show up big because I saw you and Ian, who I just did a podcast with, doing something in a different country, really showing up for the people there in a big way, changing lives, you know? Yeah. Wow. And so you inspired me. I'm inspired by Ian. And and I hopefully some people are inspired by me, <laughs> but my my goal really is to show up every day in a big way for people and inspire them to have a really extraordinary life. And you no, know, I I think yeah. Go ahead, Sarina. No, go ahead. Go, go ahead. I, I was going to say, um, you know, when we have a higher purpose. Um, it it makes a big difference, you know, um, when we're out to make a difference beyond our own benefit, where something that won't benefit us at all is really helpful. That's actually what our extremely poor mothers have found. They they talk now about the highlight of their days is not only teaching the five children that they teach, but they've done all sorts of stuff. They have um, in the lockdowns during the pandemic, they started food banks. Food banks are not something in Bangladesh that you can find. They started soup kitchens. They just rotated from hut to hut. And they, it was their idea. And they said, we're just going to, t- uh, um, you know, uh, feed children tennis. And I said, well, what happens if there's like a young adult who comes by who's really, really hungry? Yeah. Well, we'll probably let them have some food too. That's okay. Good. We're all on board with that. And, but they, and they've, uh, they, there's another, um, there's a school right now because we have like 26 different schools and they're one, one, one of them I just heard from who's, uh, they were just distributing blankets because they had, it, it was quite a long cold snap in Bangladesh. Uh, for people who have to live outside and so on. And they were going out and knocking on doors to get blankets and then and all sorts of things. They, they just never stop. And really, um, actually, it makes me think of a quotation. Can I read you a quotation? Yes, please. I love quotations. Yes. So, so this is from Rabindranath Tagore. He is, um, a very famous Bengali poet and, uh, and writer. So here it is. It's very short. He says, I slept and dreamt that life was joy. I woke and saw that life was service. I acted and behold, service was joy. That's brilliant. That's brilliant because it's exactly what it is. What you were just saying before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
And and to the surprise of these mothers, nobody goes into a third world or developing country, however you want to call it, and asks the very poorest people to do some volunteer work. Like, are you nuts? You're not going to pay us? And you're, are you kidding? Um, and yet that's what these mothers do. Wow. Yeah. And, and not only that, but the te- the children that they teach are all growing up and they all teach a sibling or two. Um, but then after that, once they get into upper grades in elementary and the government school and high school and beyond, they're all, or most of them at least, are teaching or doing other volunteer service for volunteer without pay. Getting getting jobs is easy enough for them because now they can read and write. They'll get a job and yeah, no problem. Mm-hmm. But, but this is the stuff that they, it's so fulfilling. And and that really is, it really is um, something that, um, for me, from my perspective, we're called to do now. Naturally, some people might argue with it, but that's how I see the world <laughs> yeah. is we really are here to, uh, make life better for everybody. And, you know, and, and in my case, especially the overlooked and, uh, discounted and, uh, dismissed and vulnerable populations. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, it's almost like it's, you know, how homeschooling in Canada is almost like a privilege, right? You know, it's, so it's, it's kind of like that. It's homeschooling to the max, really. And, uh, it's extraordinary. With what the mothers do, you mean? Yeah. 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 Although one, one thing I always caution people about is homeschooling is your teaching your own children. And we did that actually, or my husband again, yes. uh, <laughs> but I was admiringly looking on, I'll put it that way. Um, but uh, um, the difference with this too, because there is a difference. We only allow them with the five that they have to count. We require yeah. them, must teach five, four of them have to be not their own. Uh-huh. So for the neighborhood. Um, and, and that also makes a big difference at four, from there, they, uh, they are regularly in communications with and helping to teach the mothers of these other four children. Sometimes their children are older anyway, or they just have a baby and that's that's all five children are, are strangers to them basically. And that is so big when you, and it's a lot like, I mean, I keep going back to also, um, the work that we did in the far North in many, many first nations communities with, um, setting up students, the youth, just the senior students. Um, so be like the whole class of grade 11, 12 as an example. Um, as, uh, they became benefactors of their community, changing themselves from being, oh, discipline problems. So there'd be one or two, three good ones. Um, but the other ones, you know, you just can't trust them too far. And I bet they're going to party too hard this weekend or all that stuff that is not mm-hmm. helpful and actually change, actually providing an education and providing a way for leadership, you know, um, the very best way, like to me, the best thing, the, the thing that the, um, DIA, I'm going to call it, cause that's what we used to call Indian and Northern Affairs Canada. Yeah. We used to call it DIA in the olden days. Okay. So I'm just going to say the DIA because <laughs> we're, 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 you know, um, uh, South Africa based their apartheid system on the reserve system here and so on, because we did a great job. What we did is we took away all. Yeah, we did a great job. <laughs> Yeah, we did a great job for if that's what our goal was, is yeah. to eliminate people and stuff. Yeah. And as, so you take away all responsibility and therefore all opportunities for any meaningful leadership and so on and yeah. give them nothing to do. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. And so in that way, I link between 
First Nations youth in the far north, as an example, um, the whole history of First Nations um, people, at least the northern ones for sure. And uh, and then these uh, slum women, right? The very poorest, they're they're throwaway. They're like, well, I've let's see, I've got a cow and and three children and and a, and a wife. It's, it's like objects or something and, and, and a bottle, whatever it is. I'm, <laughs> they're not even people, you know. So you give people the opportunity to have a voice and speak coherently and and education so that they can think about what they're doing and give them the opportunity for leadership and it is so empowering and people blossom and and uh and that is everybody that I've never come across somebody who that doesn't work with before and and it's like uh really allowing um you know what what we say is like life's gift to us these children those youth in the north, whatever, whatever you're talking about, it's uh, it's life's gift to us that we allow to blossom, as opposed to doing stuff that isn't working. And in in the case again of international development, it's uh, they estimate one in three children is not getting anything like the education that even their own government uh, sees as essential. Right. Yep. Oh my goodness. Well, um, I wanted to maybe ask you to because I love stories, <laughs> to tell a story of of one of the mothers or any of the mothers teaching, like a story of something being taught. I'll give you an example. When I was, um, after we set up the Ben Kafrov School, I taught in the special education and worked with students that were having difficulty. One of the students I had, I remember his name, um, and he could not read or write. He was 14 years old, couldn't read or write. And so I was using flashcards with him and, you know, getting him just rudimentary uh, reading, you know. And But I he's was Dene, so I thought I'll mix in a little Dene with it. <laughs> and so I'd have a flashcard, it would show something, and then I'd say the Dene word. And we went on for about a few minutes. And then he just, all of a sudden, he realized what I was doing. And he said, stop, stop. And so I stopped. And then he then he said, how did you do that? How, how did you do that? I said, I thought he meant the slide projector, how I was changing the slides. And I said, oh, I've got this little, this little remote thing. And that's how I'm changing the slides. And he goes, no, how did you know my language? And I said, well, I'm Dene. You know, we speak it at home, and that's how I know it. And that, I think, turned something on in him, a lot. I liked in him. And mm-hmm. so we were quite, we were progressing quite well, and we went through um, the reading. But he really excelled in mathematics because I, I used trapping and hunting um, examples to go, you know, t- to equate the the math and he really picked up on that and I knew he would because you need to know some math if you're a trapper and so he got really really excited about learning he did really well and to the point at the end of the year he was able to apply to a vocational training to I think he wanted to work into carpentry or something so that's the the story of my experience. 
So back to my that question so- for you. <laughs> yes. So tell me a story. If you have any stories like that, that uh, can. We have probably um, like maybe at least hundreds, if not thousands of stories like that. Like, not, I don't want to like that, but of stories about um, trans, like really transformed lives from education yeah. from nothing. Um, and so you asked for a mother. So I'll, because uh, there's lots about children too, but let me give you one about um, a mother. Um, you know, uh, when they first heard about, which I don't know, we just didn't, bother to tell them until about five years into it that hey by the way there's this thing called international women's day and all you schools might want to be starting to celebrate it or thinking about something to do with that because you know in canada it's a little yeah. bit of a thing yeah, i don't know you facebook and say hey happy uh, international women's day or whatever we do yeah. and, and, and also there's serious articles written about women and, and all that but but anyway, our mothers were so excited that there could possibly be something called International Women's Day around the world that women were celebrated. They were it just really hit them. And so they boy, they planned long and hard in every one of our schools and they did parades and dramas and uh, marches down the road and with placards and singing and then speeches and everything and uh you know and and these dramas that would follow it and so on would be uh, obviously for free for everybody to come mm. um and uh so just just huge and uh, and marching when there's 25 of them marching together they always feel very safe because they are in a group of 25 there's no man that's going to do anything <laughs> i mean Man with a brain would just like stay away from that if, if they wanted to do it. So, um, and, uh, but, but they really have changed attitudes in our communities too. So that the man who thinks it's wrong now for women to get an education is now, uh, the oddball out like here. We, you know, that's just not a thing. Whereas it used to be the norm. Anyway, so I want to tell you the story about one woman whose name is Khadija and, um, so the International Women's Day March was over, but, and they have little paper hats that they make about what they think is so important about women uh-huh. and all of that. And, uh, and she was disturbed though during the march because she had something on her mind. And it is that her 12 year old girl, she came from a very poor family, right? Like all the people we work with, her 12 year old girl, the oldest of three, um, was set to be married the next week. And that's because, um, she, when she herself was married when she was 13, 13, 14, 12, Bangladesh has the highest number of child brides in the world, you know? Wow. And, and so, um, so she, uh, she, she, she was disturbed by it. She didn't like it. She didn't think it was right. Um, but it was the thing to do because they've got this perverse and I will say perverse system in Bangladesh where not only does the bride's family pay the groom's family for the privilege of getting married, which to my mind is like, isn't that backward? But, uh, but also the older the bride, the higher the dowry. Oh, is that ever messed up? Right. That yeah. means if you're, you better get your girl married at eight or nine, 10, something like that. And as you can imagine, the younger the age of the bride, the higher the incidence of violence, the higher the incidence of death, death in childbirth, death by violence, that what you name it. Uh, is not a good situation to have a little 11-year-old or even a 14-year-old getting married. They're, way, they're still children. Um, so Khadija's 12-year-old was set to be married, and the plans were there, and the man was older. Um, it wasn't a sickening situation like the man was 50, but he was like uh, 25, and she was 12. So it's like not not okay, an adult and a child. Um, 
So uh, she decided after her mind was made up from that march because it um, it uh, cemented what she believed in and what all the women believed in. And that is that it was not right to have children get married at that young age. Now, in Bangladesh, it's actually illegal. In the Constitution, in other words, in the books, there's a law prohibiting girls from getting married under the age of 18. Uh, but nobody obviously uh, follows it. You know, it's the law is broken thousands of times every every day, you know, in Bangladesh. So um, she decided to go home and she went home after that and she spoke to her husband and said, I'm not allowing the, uh, our daughter's marriage. This is not going to happen. And her husband was so surprised and wanted to argue and she wouldn't have it. And she went and marched off to the in-laws home, uh, you know, the the groom's parents, really, who were going to laws very soon. Uh, and that's, by the way, where the girl would go and live. And she said, this is not happening. I think, you know, dowries uh, are incorrect. We've got it. I'm standing for stopping dowries. It's not right. Um, and my girl is too young and we're not going to allow it. So the marriage is off. And she actually started a dowry strike in the city in which she lived. We work in three cities in Bangladesh. She started a dowry strike where all the women would again go around and they would talk to um, other neighbors. They would put on little dramas showing the danger and what she actually created in the end, of course, her daughter was not married. Her daughter is now continuing to be in school. What she started was with all of our schools in all of those neighborhoods, there's not a single girl who is married below wow. the age of 18. Yeah. Wow. Anytime the mothers hear about it and somehow women, uh, you know, happen to be very good at hearing about all that, the women are out talking to other women. Yeah. And uh, anytime they hear about it, um, these mothers, they stop it. They go and they talk to the uh, parents and uh, can, they don't lecture or scold like I might be tempted to do. Don't you know this is not good? No, they talk about their own experience. Yeah. You yeah. know, uh, <laughs> like the school is not, not ever a way that does anything. Um, yeah. So, so they talk about their own experience and how hard it was. And if that doesn't work, uh, they'll come back the next day and they usually go in groups of six or seven, depending how nervous they are. If that doesn't work, then they will threaten the parents and they say, we will go to the authorities and you will be arrested. And often, sometimes when they have to go to that stage, sometimes the parents still don't believe. And then they go in and I would love to be on a fly on the wall for this. They walk into either the nearest police station yeah. or the nearest municipal office and ask the surprised officer. They demand of the surprised officer that that officer must come out with them and tell the law, tell these parents that they're about to break the law. Mm-hmm. And, those, <laughs> and so do they do, do the officers go or are they paid oh, they off do. by someone not to go? No, no, there no bakshish there. Um, it's just, they, they do. And partly because when it comes to that stage, there's usually about 10 of our mothers who go. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and they just, and they're very powerful. These extremely poor women now in our communities, because they've just taken leadership. They'll get a petition if they need to, they can get 500 signatures, you know, in an afternoon, no problem. And, and and they threaten the officers. Even it's hilarious because even the non-elected ones, they threaten them with their job. Like we will not, we'll make sure that you're not, you know, elected again. Even you know they're not always sure about who's elected or who's not. But they're always taken seriously. They uh, so even for big things like like that. So that is what Khadija started. Wow, um, that's powerful. That is yeah. really powerful. Um, I don't know if you know, but my mother was a child bride. In the Hawaii. culture, she was 14. Oh. My dad was 20, in his 20s. We don't know exactly how old he was, but yeah. And 
I remember my mom resented that her whole marriage and um, until she passed and she passed at 97, but she resented it. And she used to tell me the stories of how, you know, she had to go live with my dad to, you know, somewhere where she was, didn't know. And then she would go back home. She'd run, run away from my dad and go back to her home. My grandpa would take her and take her back to my dad and say, that's, that's your home now. That's where you have to be. And, you know, and that was in probably 1937 or 1939. And, uh, but she had a lot of children. I mean, great things came out of it. And she lived to 97, which is super, but, um, but Angelina, so was it a marriage then set up by the parents, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, I think my grandfather met my dad at some point because my dad helped him out for something like he helped him out. And my dad was a, at that time, even as a young man was a a good hunter and trapper. And so my grandfather saw that in him and thought that to repay him for his help, just give him his daughter. So look, we, we've come a very long way in women's rights, that is for sure. But and we still have time to go. I know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's it's a start, you know, it's a start. And anyway, so we're getting close to our hour. And I'm what I would like to do at the very end, I often, you know, ask my guests to talk about their legacy. What impact in the world? have you left? And, you know, and most of the time when I ask people about legacy, they haven't thought about it or they say, well, I'm not even that old, you know, to be thinking of a legacy, (laughs) you know, but it's really the impact you have on the, on earth and what you're leaving behind is the legacy that I'd like to see and hear what your thoughts are on that. And and is it just to be uh, really clear on the question? Um, is it clear? Is it about the legacy that I have left if, if I die this afternoon, or that I would like to have left? Um, well, that you like to have left, like right. You know, hopefully, yeah, yeah. Hopefully, you know, you live to ninety-seven like my mom did. Yes, yes. So you have lots of time to to <laughs> entrench your legacy. <laughs> Uh, well, so my, my leg, what I would like to have left is, um, is that, uh, no people can be written off. No, no, there's so many, uh, and, and sorry, this won't be one sentence. I'll try to limit it to about 10 or 12 sentences, okay, but there's so many times. Take 10 minutes. Oh, great. Okay. Well, there's so many yeah. times. It's interesting, both in First Nations communities uh-huh. and in Bangladesh, where we hear in the former, um, not these kids. No, it'll never work with these parents. Not in this community. It's just like I could just have a recorder going. They don't need to open their mouths at all. I know exactly what's going to be said. So it's like they've already been written off. We already know what their limit is and they'll never do that. Okay. So that's there. But in Bangladesh and every culture has it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but in Bangladesh, um, it's, uh, um, we went around when we first opened up the school, like started schooling, we thought, well, gosh, it would really be good to have a partner. There are NGOs in the field with much, like a lot of experience. Let's 
partner with them. Mm. And we approached many NGOs, big ones that were local as well as international. And to a T, they all said, well, I mean, it's going to be, you know, like, first of all, uh, it's really going to be worth your life going into venturing into those slums. They're dangerous. Um, the, the husbands will really resent what you're doing. The, uh, you know, it's, the police are not going to even like you because they've all got their own reasons for keeping education out. The slum lords are going to hate you. And the, you know, the, even the MMs are going to, uh, not, not want to have you in. So I don't think it can ever work. But if it ever did, if you ever were allowed to open up a school, these women, can't learn enough to teach other children. That's for sure. So I was like that. And that's basically all that I needed to hear that me and Jem needed to hear to know that, oh, okay, well then we're doing it. Cause we had heard that so many times with, for, in the first nations communities, not necessarily by first nations people. It was by the teaching staff. And so not with these kids, not these parents, not this community. So legacy, it would be, um, that every, not only individual, but every population, there's no population that isn't worth our time to sink our hearts into, to uh, really give everything we've got to be able to, uh, and for me, through education, to be able to lift them out of where they are so that they empower themselves to uh, take control over their own lives, you know, and and it's like... Um, it's maybe not a great analogy with your grandmother because that was a different time when those sort of marriages did happen. But I can tell you in Bangladesh for the uneducated children with when they're uneducated, the little boys lives belong to the extremist group idiot or to um, some uh, exploitive employer, the girls and to a bunch of other things too. And the girls lives don't belong to them either. They belong to some prearranged marriage spouse, and they might be wife number two or three or whatever, but yeah. it's certainly not anything they've chosen. So really, my legacy, giving people's lives back to them, but fully. We have brains that are just waiting, like just waiting, you know, and uh, and 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 hearts. Oh, and one more thing, too. <laughs> when our brains grow in the usual sort of way that we think of school, so do our hearts. We become different people. And we've seen that in every place we've been. So, yeah, yeah. Boy, that was a long winded answer, Angelina. <laughs> no, that's but it's so right on. Like, I, I, I really like that because it speaks to your purpose. And, you know, I might even say your soul's purpose. Yeah. And, and, and it's like a higher calling, yeah. you know, and to do this. And, and it's, it's admirable because, you know, we often see injustices in the world and we think it ought not to be like that. And, you know, we think, hmm, this is not good, but we don't do anything about it. Because of what you just said, you know, people say, oh, it cannot be done. You know, we can't do this. There's going to be this limitations. And besides, you're not going to succeed anyway. You know, so so we're pushed down, you know, and and if you don't have that purpose, yeah. the intention behind the purpose, you can give up easy enough. Right. You know, First Nations communities have an used to have an expression. I don't know if it's still so common, but it's don't stick your head up above the others. Basically, every culture in the world has a version of that. Yes. And you're 
exactly what you say. Yeah, that's yeah. it. You just fall into line, keep your head down and, you know, don't try to do anything outstanding or unusual or that's going to disrupt the way things are. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be a disruptor. Just be exactly. a good, quiet person. And I think that that is largely the influence of residential school for Indigenous peoples across Canada. And, you know, and th- those people that want to say something and make a change, they're silenced. And in fact, I just got a call yesterday. A lady from my community called and she says, you know, I want to ask you about this. And, you know, she wanted to, to know about this specific bill. And I said, so why do you want to know about that bill? <laughs> you know, what's the context here? And she said, well, I heard about it at the meeting and in our community, and it looks like they're going to create some laws in the community regarding this bill. But I don't want to just be sitting there. And you know, she says, I asked questions. Nobody answered them. And basically, I was just ignored. But she says, I'm not willing to just say yes to something if I don't understand it. And mm-hmm. You're the only person I know to call that can explain it to me. <laughs> so, so I said, well, you know, I don't like to give advice without getting all the details. So I said, you know, send me the PowerPoint slide that was produced at the meeting with the documents. And then I will explain it to you once I've got all the information, because I don't know really what you're talking about, you know. So, you know, so people do try to stand up. And they do try to speak out and let their their opinions known, you know, that this is not correct and it can't be like this because you're oppressing us too and you're just using us to, maybe it was to get funding or maybe it was to allow industry to come into the community. I don't know what, because I haven't received all the documents yet, but we are in the indigenous communities often silenced and and we it's not right to be speaking up and if you speak up you're looked on as a troublemaker yeah not somebody yeah so so good and yet you know you try to speak for justice or even by the way you're in a group because we've come across this so many times before with people we really love where they're they they're all everybody in their family drinks and that's what you do on the weekend or throughout the week even or whatever you stop drinking in other words it could even be an injustice against yourself yes and or potential and that's put down i mean just amazing yeah and and of course it's not it's not specific to first nations communities but we can easily see it there yeah for sure yeah, yeah. well i think this is really really a good conversation. I I did want to get more understanding about the school and I wanted to get your impression, you know, and let the listeners know, like, what kind of person does it take to do this kind of thing? And I think it takes an ordinary, extraordinary person to do this because we're all ordinary, right? But it's what we, our actions can be extraordinary and can make a difference, can make an impact and create change yeah. like the women in Bangladesh they're creating change it's a ripple effect um you know you were saying earlier that you know what 
what you're doing with these schools is a drop in the ocean. And what the women are doing is like a little bit more of a splash in the ocean, you know? So it will, the ripple effect will continue and it will continue to the next generation and the next generation. And essentially it is like breaking the cycle, breaking the shame and creating a group of people that will honor their humanity and not stand to be quashed. (laughs) Really nicely put, Angelina. Yeah. Honoring your humanity. Absolutely. And uh, yeah. And, and interestingly enough to very often it's easier to change one's identity from either a disdained person who nobody has any time for and you're, you're garbage or uh, say, you know, when I look at some of the Indigenous youth, like I've been in, you know, B&E and I've been into the justice system and I'm tough, whatever, to change your who you are in a group. When you've got a whole group yeah. changing with you, your peers changing with you, it can happen remarkably quickly. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. And it's and it's uh, you're doing great work, you know, and, you know, in you know, the schools up north in Alberta, Indigenous schools, and in the schools in Bangladesh, like you're, you're putting your mark on this world, <laughs> you know, there, there is, you're making an impact, you know, and uh, a positive impact, you know. Thanks. I, I just need to get to 97, though, to really do what I need. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And you will maybe... You'll make it like my grandmother. She was 103 when she passed. So, well, my my mom is 96. So there you go. <laughs> oh, there you go. You've got longevity going for you. <laughs> the next thing you have to do is just make sure you take care of this this body and uh, keep it healthy, and uh, you know, keep living your purpose, living up to your purpose, and show up in the world in a big way. I really appreciate you um, doing this interview with me. And, uh, and I just, you know, I usually end the podcast with saying that, you know, the recording is on unceded Algonquin territory, a land acknowledgement. I wanted to acknowledge that. But before we end, end, <laughs> I'd like to give you an opportunity. Is there some things that you thought of during our conversation that you that kind of sparks something and you want to say um, that you haven't said? No, I I don't think so. I think I've certainly done plenty of talking and uh, just thank you for this opportunity because it represents it even for myself, even right now. Um, You know, it's, it's about um, justice for every person in the world um, and making the world a better place. And especially for those voices that are um, unheard and sidelined. Yes, marginalized. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Monroe. It's a great pleasure to talk to you. And I I am proud to call you my friend. <laughs> Likewise. And let thank him you. know that I truly enjoyed his book. I, I'm going to order more. And what I liked about the books is that the proceeds go to charity. Um, 100% of it. So that's... and. I think in the show notes, I'll, I'll put a link to the, the website where, where the books can be ordered. And sure. if anybody 
is interested in how you do this wonderful work, I think a great way to to support it is to buy a book and to learn about it. Get some information. And, and you know, but one thing I'll just add, when people think, oh, a book on charity, oh my God, that's going to either be boring or awful. It's actually pretty hilarious, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. These are stories. And like I said, I love stories. It, it, I mean, I it's, love just, it, it, like it's two short stories yeah. of uh, a Canadian's families. That's our family. Yeah. Um, time over there in this weird place called Bangladesh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and I totally it. love the story of beauty. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and she was like, she made me laugh in terms of like, because you understand her reluctance to do certain things and, and why she was shy, why she was doing, you know, behaved a certain way. And I especially love the name. <laughs> I know. I know. One of our teachers' names is Happy. Oh, I had a friend named Happy. Well, it wasn't her her real name. Her her name was Mary, but my brother called her Happy because she was always grumpy. <laughs> did it work? <laughs> well, when she was around him, I think it did because <laughs> you know, when you talk about humor, that was his kind of humor. He saw that she was grumpy and really miserable most of the time. So he called her happy and she saw that humor. So when she was around him, she was happy. I was lovely. Oh my goodness. All right. Then I think we've, we've gone a little bit over our, our time anyway. So thank you. And I hope you're keeping cool in BC. <laughs> Because there's a heat, heat wave there. And Thanks, Angelina. Thank you very much for inviting me. <laughs> Thank you so much. And we'll talk again in between. Um, but I really appreciate having this opportunity to have this conversation. And I think the conversation we had today is really important. It's huge. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.